When we first uh, started the book of Revelation, I remember confessing that I really didn't know for sure what I thought about this book because I had been taught one thing growing up and through college, but had decided that I didn't think that made sense with other passages of Scripture. Well, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, I'm beginning to come to some clarity in how I see the book and its depictions of things here on earth and in heaven. Now, my view is still evolving as I study and learn. Hopefully, my views will continue and on certain things will continue to grow. But there's one thing that hasn't changed, though. That is my certainty that Jesus is the true king and that he is coming back to set everything right. I'm also convinced that when we all stand before the Father, he'll tell us that we were all wrong on certain things. Now, Revelation is an apocalyptic book. We tend to think of apocalypse as some earth-shaking event or events. But apocalypse simply means an unveiling, a disclosure, or a revelation. This book is a revelation of Jesus as the true king, who is coming back to conquer and destroy evil and create a new creation. It's a prophecy of Jesus' return. But like the prophecies in the Old Testament, there's no timeline by which we can figure out when that will happen. Don't forget that the Jews waited through 400 years of silence from God before the promised Messiah showed up. And I'm sure there were people during that time who spent a lot of energy trying to figure out the timing and the manner of his coming and died without having their hopes fulfilled. I don't believe that this book of the Bible was written by John as a means of providing a timeline so we can match the words and descriptions with current events and figure out when Jesus is going to come back and take vengeance on his enemies. We're told that no one knows the time when Jesus will return. The reason to study Revelation is not to try and figure out when the king will return, like the folks some years ago who were told by their leader that Jesus was going to come back on a certain day, and they went out on a high hill and waited for Jesus to come. The unfortunate part was that they waited on that hill completely naked because they were going to be clothed in righteousness and didn't need any clothes. This actually happened back, I don't know, probably 30, 40 years ago or more. I believe that John wrote this prophecy as a challenge, an encouragement, and a warning to a group of churches in Asia Minor. The island of Patmos was just off the coast of the mainland where those seven churches were. Because God preserved it, it could also serve these same purposes for us 2,000 years later. I've heard John described as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And there's a lot of similarity between Revelation and the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. Like all of Scripture, there are ways in which John's writings 
are relevant to us today, and there is much we can learn. The book is an apocalypse, a revealing. It's also a prophecy. As John states, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy about what Jesus is going to do. The book is set in the world of the early church. Christians were being persecuted and needed to be encouraged to stay faithful. Chapters 2 and 3 have a lot of that. John is prophesying to these churches that Jesus is still the king, not Caesar, and that they will be vindicated and Babylon will be defeated. Now, he doesn't give a timeline because the timing is in God's hands. Just as the Old Testament prophets foresaw things that happened long after their time, so John is writing about things that haven't happened yet in the last 2,000 years. Or have they? You can chew on that one if you want. In chapter 5, John heard that the Lion of Judah was worthy to open the scroll because he had conquered. When John looked, he saw a lamb. And this lamb had been slain. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that this lamb had conquered by shedding his blood and redeeming people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, making them into a kingdom. In chapter 7, John hears the number of the servants sealed, 144,000, which I believe alludes to the military census back in Numbers 1, when God had Moses take a census of the army of Israel. John then sees the Lamb's army, a multitude that no one can number. And they, too, had shed their blood. I believe that the judgments that we read in Revelation are not consecutive events, but are instead cycles of repetition. There are three cycles of seven judgments. Numbers are very important in Revelation and always carry a symbolic value. Seven is the number of perfection implying something done according to divine design, something that is complete. Three implies the ultimate of something. So seven times three would be the ultimate of perfection. The judgments are the complete, perfect wiping out of evil. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all fit together and come out of one another. I've seen it described as sort of a nesting doll. Rather than a chronological series of subsequent events, I see the judgments as running parallel throughout the entire period between the first and the second coming of Christ. Each set of seven culminates in the day of the Lord. And there is only one day of the Lord. There are similar themes in each section. The bliss of the redeemed and their trials and persecutions. The destruction of the Lamb's enemies. The judgment of the wicked and so on. The same promise is repeated in each section. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The judgments 
which I've read that could be better described as disciplines, and I think in some way that's true, are designed to change hearts, much like the judgments on Egypt in Exodus. I believe these things, whatever they will or whatever they may be, will fall on the earth as a whole, but that God's people will be protected through them. Much like the faithful of Israel were protected through the judgments that fell on their land and in, which, in the land in which they were living after the fall of Jerusalem. In these judgments, God is judging Babylon and those who have thrown their allegiance to Babylon. To John and his readers, Babylon is another name for Rome. Babylon is more than just a city or a nation. It is the kingdom of this earth an anti-God kingdom ruled by the forces of evil. Michael Heiser describes it as the anti-Eden. We saw the first Babylon back in Genesis 11, and it has been with us ever since. Egypt was Babylon. Of course, Babylon was Babylon. Persia, Alexander's empire, Rome, the Holy Roman Empire, mid-20th century Germany and its allies, were Babylon. The Soviet Union, today's Russia, and China are Babylon. The British Empire and the United States, even though they claimed and claimed to be Christian nations, are Babylon. Every nation, because it is a kingdom of this world, is Babylon. Every nation has and will set itself up against the true king and his kingdom and will be judged. All evil will be destroyed. I know that was a long introduction, but I felt I needed to lay a bit of a foundation for today's passage. Verses 6 through 9. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The seven seals have been opened. Silence has reigned in heaven for about a half hour. And seven angels have been given seven trumpets. The first angel blows the trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown down on the earth. There's an allusion to a couple of Old Testament passages here. In Exodus 9, we read, And Moses stretched forth his hand to heaven. And the Lord sent thunderings and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground. And the Lord rained hail on all the land of Egypt. So there was hail and flaming fire mingled with hail. And the hail was very great, such as was not in Egypt from the time there was a nation upon it. And the hail smote in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail smote all the grass in the field, and the hail broke in pieces all the trees in the field. 
Only in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were, the hail was not. Now, in Revelation 8, the plagues fall not just on Egypt, but on the entire earth. In Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, God states that his judgment will fall on all Judah. In this case, two-thirds will be destroyed, and one-third will come out as if they were refined by fire. In Ezekiel 5, verses 1 to 4, God says to Ezekiel, And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword. Use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Later in verse 12, the fire is interpreted as plague and famine. In Ezekiel 38, we read about the destruction of Gog and Magog. Verse 22, I will judge him with pestilence and blood and sweeping rain and hailstones, and I will rain upon him fire and brimstone and upon all that are with him and upon many nations with him. A man by the name of Boxall, a commentator on Revelation, writes that an empire founded on bloodshed whether that of Christ, his followers, or other unnamed victims, can only reap blood in return. And these depictions in verse 8 also follow the themes somewhat of Joel and of Amos. So there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here that, that John is using. Verses 8 and 9, the second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. In Jewish apocalyptic writings, kingdoms were often described as mountains. In the Bible, we have Jeremiah 51 Many verses in Revelation in chapter 14, 17, 18, and 21. And even in the apocryphal writings, which John would have been familiar with, 1 Enoch 18, 13. In verse 9, a burning mountain is thrown into the sea. I don't believe that this is an asteroid or some other cosmic thing. But it's rather an image of the kingdom of Babylon. In other words, the kingdom of this world the evil force that is against the true king, the anti-Eden. In chapter 18 of Revelation, we see the final judgment on this anti-Christ system. Ezekiel 38, 19 states that when Gog and Magog are thrown down, the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble 
to the ground. In Jeremiah 51, verses 25 to 26, God says of Babylon, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. A third of the sea turning to blood, I believe, alludes to the plague in Egypt in Exodus 7, where the water is turned into blood. All the fish in the Nile died in Exodus. And here in Revelation, a third of the creatures of the sea are killed. A third of the ships being destroyed could allude to a reduction in maritime commerce. That's also in chapter 18 verses 17 to 19. If a great kingdom is thrown down, a kingdom at that time who did all of its commerce pretty much by ship along with overland routes, a third of the ships being destroyed would have caused some serious problems. <coughs> so anyway, that's, that's how I see the, these verses. Obviously, uh, your results may vary. Um, so how does this affect us? Really, I think either way. But how does this affect us? Whether or not we are living in the last days, which come Lord Jesus, we are living in Babylon. As I've said before, the world we live in today is very similar to that of first century Rome. Some of the old Roman gods are even being worshipped, whether people realize it or not. For instance, Mars, the god of war, the god of power. There is a warlike spirit prevalent in our culture, even among those who claim to follow the Prince of Peace. Mammon, Money, just look around, and it should be painfully obvious. We put in God we trust on the God that we trust. Eros, sex, again, should be obvious. We live in a highly sexualized culture. Now, idolatry is not just bowing down to an image made of stone or wood. The gods of this world have wormed their way into the church. And sometimes the church is unrecognizable. So how do we live in Babylon as subjects of the kingdom of heaven? First, we need to commit to the word of God in scripture as God's revelation for us. Scripture reveals Jesus and gives us the means to disciple people to follow him rather than disciple them into a political or cultural ideology. Second, we must recapture the belief that Jesus Christ is the one true Lord over all. We must be willing to bow to the true king, even if it brings us less power, fame, or wealth, or even if it causes us to suffer. 
Third, we need to be discerning. It's good to trust that God empowers government. It's good to love our country, to be patriotic, to vote, and even serve in government. Look at Daniel. He served the rulers in Babylon well and in Persia when it came to be in charge. But when push came to shove, Daniel knew that his allegiance was first and foremost to the God of Israel. And he was willing to call those rulers to account and even to disobey them. We must be willing to do the same thing rather than blindly follow a leader or a party. As it has been said, kind of become a bit of a cliche, but I think it's true. We don't follow an elephant or a donkey. We follow the lamb. The fourth thing we must do is realize that the church transcends the things of Babylon. The true church is made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We have brothers and sisters who may not agree with us on everything, but they're still part of our family. And this is one time where family does come first. We must proclaim the gospel. Our only message as Christians must be that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He ascended to the Father, and he will return. The Lamb who died for us becomes the Lord who slays the dragon and who conquers Babylon. Now the day may come when Babylon asks for our worship. If it comes, I don't know what form it will take, but that day may come. Our response must be, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord our God. May we live as subjects of the kingdom that has no end. How goes the world? It goes not well. But the kingdom comes. Let's pray.